Welcome to our next voyage on T-10, the show with 10-minute takes on the future of education in healthcare. I'm your host, Tim Fitzpatrick. On today's voyage, you'll hear from Owen Willis, an experienced operator, community builder, and investor in the world of early stage healthcare technology. Owen has had a fascinating career path. After starting out in the classroom with Teach for America, then teaching English in China, and a few years consulting, Owen transitioned into the role of COO at a well-known medical education startup called Osmosis, where he helped the company grow from 10 to over 150 teammates and landed over 100 partnerships with leading medical schools and companies like 23andMe and Kaiser Permanente. Since Osmosis, Owen has been focused on community building and investing, where he spends most of his time these days. One last note, this one is chock full of insights and earned wisdom. If you're at a startup or you're a champion in a larger organization working with startups, you're going to want to listen to Owen's playbook for building successful partnerships. And if you're an early stage investor, be sure to check out our show notes and read Owen's latest piece on getting to conviction in early stage health tech. We are ready to go. Please enjoy this jam-packed conversation with my good friend, Owen Willis. Owen, welcome to T-Minus 10. So good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Tim. Excited to be here. Excited to welcome both you and Teddy to the show. So I first question for you, I know you're someone um, I respect just because you have such a deep and broad understanding of education and healthcare, having been an operator yourself, a community builder, and now more recently as an investor. I'd love to hear your take on uh, education in particular, given all those experiences and where you've seen some uh, recent advances and exciting areas of improvement in education. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, in addition to what you just shared, uh, I actually started my career in the classroom. So I was a, uh, a special ed teacher in Washington, D.C., um, and, and got to see uh, firsthand that, that intersection of education and healthcare. As a teacher, I got to see the power of uh, education as a way to enable people to advocate for themselves. Um, I think the first step of, of advocacy is actually understanding um, kind of the array of options in front of you. And the best way to do that is through access to content and knowledge. Um, I think access is, is actually a very important piece of that. Access is, is both kind of where you are getting the content. You know, is it someplace that you know and trust? Is it a place that you already uh, are, uh, are familiar with? Um, but it's also the, the content itself, right? Is the content something um, that you're able to understand that is meeting you at your level of knowledge within the subject that you are trying to learn more about. And I think in healthcare specifically, um, what we end up seeing is that a lot of the content is produced by clinicians and for clinicians, um, but it, it's not really done kind of thinking about the ways in which patients will access it. Um, and so what ends up happening is, you know, you'll have a uh, a piece of content that's given to a patient, you know, obviously with incredibly good intentions, but um, at the end of the day, you know, they're not able to understand it, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, the content itself is is using a lot of the language of medicine and is um, in many ways kind of blocking the patient from actually accessing the kernels of, of knowledge that are, are held within it. And so when I was at Osmosis and, and when we were building Osmosis, a big piece of, of our content development work um, was thinking about designing content in a way that we believed it should be shared 
from clinician to patients, right? So taking out all of that medical jargon, taking out those things that were really kind of shorthand for doctors and, you know, making the content and information fully accessible to folks um, in order to help them be able to better advocate for themselves uh, when talking to their clinicians. And one of the things we found was actually a, a large percentage of our of our users, the people who were kind of watching our videos and finding our content on YouTube and Wikipedia um, were patients or their families, right? People who, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, when something has happened to a family member of mine, uh, if something were to happen to Teddy, I would be uh, voraciously scouring the internet for pieces of information, snippets of content that I can access. And being able to give that to folks all in one place uh, and, and, content that we knew was incredibly high quality because we had developed it with clinicians um, was really, really powerful in, in building that audience and giving folks the tools that they need to, to advocate for themselves and their family. Um, Amazing. One of the things that I am incredibly proud of actually in our time at Osmosis was the work that we did with the National Organization for Rare Disorders. Um, I know the organization right now is doing a lot of work around um, this, uh, the year of the zebra um, of increasing awareness of rare diseases. Mm -hmm. um, but those patient advocacy communities, um, uh, you know, need that information. They need that shared language to be able to help each other um, advocate for their children and, and, and the care that they need. So that for, that for me was one of the, the really exciting and, and kind of high points of, of getting to work at, at Osmosis and think about mm -hmm. education as a tool for giving patients ownership. I love that. And I know we've, we've talked about that ownership theme before. We've talked about on the show with Vanessa and Nielchi, for those who remember their episodes. I, I also would encourage anyone who's interested in osmosis to go check out just a great example is the YouTube channel. It's been an inspiration, obviously hearing that entire thought process for how you do construct and create content in a way that is almost instantly shareable. And it is able to be acted upon by those patients. I I, I absolutely resonate and love that theme. I'd love to hear too, if maybe you could talk about how providers think about education, right? So we've now we've heard patients having access, being able to take ownership and advocate, but how are clinicians thinking about the role of education in their, uh, in their seats? Yeah. I mean, I think the, that's a great question. Um, I think for clinicians, there's kind of two pieces of, of, of education, right? There's the, um, initial learning of content, right? And a lot of that initial learning of content will happen in uh, in medical school or in nursing school, right? This is stuff that they are um, memorizing. They are then kind of taking exams for. And, you know, in that setting, um, there's a tremendous amount of content to consume. There's a lot of stuff that has to be memorized. And the, the thing that is most uh, important to them in, in thinking about kind of their education is whether or not they're actually learning medicine effectively, right? Um, so it's not just that they are, you know, reducing the amount of time that they're spending studying because these, these students are going to study eight hours a day, no matter what yes. it's, you know, is that time being allocated more efficiently and are they able to remember the content longer? So, you know, we were able to use a lot of evidence-based learning strategies when we were at osmosis to help clinicians 
uh, learn that content more quickly and, and, and obviously remember it longer. What ends up happening is that there's a, a big difference between learning the content and, and applying it on an exam and then actually applying it in practice as a clinician. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, uh, as a, a system, we're not especially good at actually training people on becoming doctors. We're really good at training them in, in terms of uh, how to learn medicine. We're not very good uh, about training them around the business of medicine um, or necessarily the, the application of medicine. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as somebody goes into practice, what ends up happening is um, they, be, they require uh, more content that I would describe as kind of just-in-time learning, right? So this is content that, you know, they come across a, 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 a patient with a very specific set of uh, uh, a set of specific set of symptoms that maybe they saw once when they were in medical school. Mm-hmm. What are the tools that they are going to be able to use to um, effectively diagnose that patient, right? And, and all of those, I think, would, would could be described as, as just-in-time learning tools. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other thing is that medicine changes, right? It, it's there. There is some content that we would maybe consider to be evergreen, right? Um, kind of. Uh, known and, and unchanging, but a lot of the content is going to change as we understand the human body better. And one of the things that's really difficult for clinicians to do is keep up with that content. And so I think the other place where learning is really, really helpful for clinicians is you know being able to push them content that um, has changed since they first learned it. Um, and those are things that allow them to become better doctors, obviously that can happen through kind of continuing education. Um, you know, oftentimes it happens kind of through a, a clinician's own curiosity or research. Um, but it, it is an important part of, uh, you know, the practice of being a doctor is that curiosity to continually learn and, and uh, do away with, with some of those biases that maybe you had from your time in medical school um, or prior to becoming a, a clinician. Yeah, this is so one one flip side. I love the point on let's say it's something they've only learned once or have used very infrequently. Well, we also often hear about people who cover the same topic all day long mm-hmm. and how exhausting that is. So mm-hmm. the ability to have something that that kind of picks up and gives you back some of that time. Um, another kind of topic thinking about the system level, right? So we started point of care patients. We talked about providers. I'd love to kind of roll it up all the way to why Why do hospitals care? Why do systems care about the compounding effects of getting education right, making sure it's up to date, um, giving the physicians and clinicians the tools they need to, to be able to educate effectively? Why does that matter for the system? Yeah, I mean, I think there's... Um... A, a few different reasons, right? Um, obviously, there is a desire to make sure that uh, you're continually improving patient outcomes. Um, and, you know, in the US, you know, obviously kind of utilizing um, kind of the best practices around evidence-based care. Um, the other big thing is risk. Uh, so uh, with with hospitals um, and, and with you know, large provider groups and all the way down to kind of individual providers. Um, risk is something that is is top of mind for folks, um, especially as it relates to medical malpractice. And, you know, there are, um, you know, lots of different ways risk is uh, 
is, is structured in the hospitals, right? So there are um, kind of different types of risk pools. There are kind of different types of patient populations that you kind of all cluster together um, as, as part of risk management. But um, at the end of the day, the, the biggest kind of focus of risk for these hospitals is around the patient clinician interactions, right? You know, is the doctor uh, providing good bedside manner? Um, is the patient uh, receiving the information correctly? Are they accessing the information kind of at their level? Uh, and are they demonstrating understanding around the decisions uh, that they're making around their health or the health of a family member? Um, and so kind of informed consent becomes uh, a big part and a big driver of, of the need for education within, within hospital systems. Um, you know, fundamentally, you know, a, a large percentage of these medical uh, kind of these medical malpractice insurance claims come down to issues around informed consent, uh, issues around communication between doctors and their patients. And, uh, you know, the other side of that is uh, a large number of the lawsuits <laughs> around uh, malpractice um, come down to the fact that the patient didn't feel like they were being listened to or respected by their doctor. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of that is, is education related. Uh, some of that candidly is the doctor being an asshole, right? And, um, but all of that can be mitigated through education, whether that is the actual content that is being presented to patients or training for clinicians around bedside manner, um, or even the translation of content and documents so that it is fully accessible by the patients. Um, and that is of, of huge interest. And that was a big uh, kind of focus for us at Osmosis um, as it relates to these medical malpractice insurance companies, because for them, you know, the thing that they are most interested in is driving down the risk of malpractice um, at, at these different uh uh, provider networks and and um, uh, hospital systems that they work with, and one of the things that we were able to do is 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 work with folks around looking at whether education was a a mechanism that could be used for mitigating risk, um, especially uh, um, among institutions that were self insured and had these captive insurance pools, where you know at the end of the day the 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 entity that was was taking on risk was the organization itself. You know, I, I'm so glad you mentioned kind of a few areas, right? Impossible solutions from training, improving training, reducing bias or eliminating bias if we can, improving communication, translation. You know, this immediately my mind goes to the startups, the companies, the people, a lot of them, a lot of many of whom we both know and, and have. And we met, we first, you and I first crossed paths through On Deck Health. And um, I'm curious now, kind of switching gears, we've covered. Uh, the health system, we've talked about risk, we've talked about the large entities and why they care and should care about education. I'd love to kind of talk at a high level about investing. Now that you have this new lens and you're thinking about things a bit more on the grand scale, but also at times on the micro scale, uh, where are you seeing themes that, that you resonate with, that you're excited about, uh, especially in this age of things are changing quickly, the market is changing, and we're all very curious what 2023 is going to look like and how companies are planning for the next five, seven, 10 years, what that innovation might look like. 
Absolutely. So I think on the on the investing side, the spaces that I'm I'm most interested in are around the large percentages of the population who are not currently being served by the healthcare system. Um, I think every one of us has a story of uh, trying to receive care, uh, either for ourselves or a family member, and being stymied uh, in in that process. Mm-hmm. And I, I think at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to looking at those incentive structures that drive decision making in healthcare, uh, whether that's you know, understanding that, you know, your end user, maybe it's a patient, maybe it's a provider, isn't necessarily going to be the purchaser of your solution and and figuring out how to line up those decision makers in a way that is going to unlock access to care. I think we can use those sorts of things uh, and apply them a little bit more broadly to increase access to care, you know, around women's health as it relates to things that are outside of the, uh, the fertility space, or mm-hmm. as we look at uh, tackling obesity, which is one of the um, kind of largest challenges uh, facing our healthcare system right now. Um, or it could be tied to how we think about rural healthcare uh, and supporting folks who are who are outside of cities um, who do have more limited access to care. Um, all of those things are are incredibly important, but the one of the kind of the elephant in the room that people just like don't really seem to be willing to talk about uh, is the crisis that we're facing around clinician retention. Um, Being a doctor is an exceptionally difficult job. And the big challenge is, you know, as we're looking to bring more patients in, right, as we're looking to expand access of, of kind of who can get care in the U.S., we're also looking at this exodus of, uh, skilled professionals within healthcare and a limited kind of top of funnel supply coming in from, from our kind of training programs. And so um, one of the things I'm really interested in is thinking about kind of how the role of the doctor is going to transform uh, over the next 10 years. How do we make that a more sustainable position, not just for doctors, but also nurses and other uh, skilled healthcare um, workers? Uh, and then, you know, what does that look like in terms of how the structures in our healthcare system are going to change, right? Up until very recently, we've seen a, a massive swing of uh, providers, uh, healthcare providers, specifically doctors, moving towards large provider networks. My sense is that that pendulum is going to start swinging in the other direction again, and more clinicians are going to be um, either going into private practice or um, uh, serving as a, as a clinician part-time and pursuing other opportunities on the side. How do we support doctors who are, who are making those changes? How do we help them work more efficiently without creating more paperwork? Those are some of the things that I'm really, really interested in right now. Amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm excited just hearing you talk about the themes. Yeah, I know we talk about this often, but I, I do love hearing the, the broader context and kind of um, what what is possible when we start kind of pulling on those threads and asking those questions. I, I'd love to, just as we think about wrapping up here, I think an area that you touched on as far as uh, who you think might pay for your solution might not actually pay for your solution. And we started the conversation talking about health systems, hospitals, and how they think about risk. I'd love to maybe 
hear your thoughts around partnering. I, I think a, a huge question, question mark, an area that a lot of early stage startups, especially in health tech, struggle with is identifying partners in the early days to help them figure out their technologies, to, to evaluate and validate what it is that they hypothesize their tool is going to do. But it all comes down or much of it comes down to identifying and finding the right ways for organizations and systems to partner with startups. I'm curious, uh, given that that is so much of what you've spent your time doing now across several areas, do you have any kind of high level tips for people on either side of that equation as they think about forging partnerships? Absolutely. Um, and I can address it both from kind of the startup side and then from the, uh, the organization side. Um, my own experience is, is from the startup side. Uh, so selling into uh, large organizations and, and being very fortunate enough to develop a, a sales motion that enabled us to capture a large percentage of a pretty difficult market in, um, in about 18 months. Uh, you know, I, I think the, on the founder startup side, you really have to have your story down. Um, and the story is going to look a little bit different depending on who you're talking to. Uh, but, you know, when you are looking for your first partner or your first partners, um, you know, they're not necessarily going to be supporting you. You're not going to get a champion necessarily just based on kind of metrics because there are going to be other companies that have better metrics than you. Um, you are getting someone interested and excited based on the vision for what you're looking to build and the potential uh, that it'll, it'll have for an organization. Um, and those are the types of, you know, when you're looking for a champion within an org, like you want them to have that buy-in. Um, and then you also want to make sure that they have, they are kind of within one degree of separation from the actual final decision maker within the organization. And if that person is not that, you know, they can still be of, of huge help to you as you're, as you're building, but you need to kind of keep finding the right person within an org to make that happen. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of actually getting the pilot itself or kind of getting that first customer, uh, you know, the, per the, the champion that you identify within the organization is your salesperson. And um, what you need to be doing is equipping them with the tools, the resources, the collateral, the information to be able to effectively sell you within that organization without you being there. And so... Uh, a lot of that comes down to the relationship that you build with that person, um, the uh, alignment that you build with that person in terms of um, getting them kind of inside access to what you're building and, and extra collateral that they can kind of bring to their colleagues. Um, and then it's about uh, really getting them excited about you guys essentially being on a team together and getting them bought in uh, in, in bringing this solution to the organization. And so that, that's, you know, there are no shortcuts or hacks or anything mm -hmm. like that to it. It's, it's just old fashioned relationship building, um, and making sure that that person feels equipped. Um, on the other side of things, the person who's sitting in that chair, who is your champion, uh, you have to realize that they're taking on a tremendous amount of risk, uh, in terms of promoting a startup, getting a pilot, you know, they on their end are, are having to think about their careers and their jobs. And you need to be doing everything you can to de-risk this for them uh, as they're circulating it within their organization. Um, 
the people in those seats on, you know, in thinking about kind of their relationship with startups, you know, they are um, a, a fantastic tool uh, of kind of sales insights uh, for the founders within an organization as a, as a champion of a founder, the thing that you can do to be most helpful is providing real insights to the founder about how the process is going, what is working, what isn't resonating, and giving them that really, really honest feedback that's going to allow them to tweak their pitch, tweak their go-to-market, tweak their wedge, uh, so that they're able to effectively sell. I think the thing that sometimes gets lost on the champion side is that because they are so excited about the founder, because they're so excited about the opportunity, they present everything to the founder through these rose-colored lenses, which at the end of the day is not actually helpful to the founder who is, you know, kind of fighting for their life to, to kind of get that wedge uh, in, into the market. And so mm -hmm. I think the number one thing for kind of the champion is to be very, very honest about the feedback that is coming, you know, not making sure that you're not filtering that. Um, uh, and then, you know, in the conversations that you're having within the organization, just making sure that you're kind of keeping an ear to the ground as opportunities come up, as insights come up that could be really helpful to the founder, obviously within the context of what you're allowed to share inside or outside of your organization. Um, I think the, the, the final piece of that is uh, we found at, uh, as we were selling that there was a, a little bit of a whisper network um, between folks at different organizations who are working in the same role. And, you know, by accessing that, that, that network, um, we were able to very effectively jump from institution to institution to institution. So, you know, for us, it was really important with some of these, these organizations, um, obviously to set up pilots, um, have kind of metrics that were very, very achievable for us, and then, you know, leverage those and leverage those whisper networks to then jump to other organizations in other parts of the country. And so on the founder side, making sure that you're setting up kind of pilots to be, uh, you know, things that you can actually make sure that those pilots are actually achievable. Um, and then on the, uh, on the champion side, uh, making sure that you're kind of wearing that hat of champion, both within your organization, but also as you're talking to your colleagues at, at conferences over WhatsApp groups or in, in Slack channels. So I think kind of the combination of those two things um, and, and really kind of that alignment um, between founder and champion is what allows you not only to get that that first contract, but then turn that into subsequent opportunities with um, uh, other organizations down the road. Oh, and this is uh, this is great because I know half of our audience is about founders and half is champions. So um, I know that uh, people are really going to enjoy and appreciate all the insights. Nail your stories, find your champions, build the vision. I love the whisper networks and um, scaling and growing beyond the initial customer set. I thank you for. For coming on, this has been such a uh, an eye opening and obviously a great conversation around education. I appreciate you. Where can people find you, connect with you after this show is over? Yeah, um, well, Tim, thank you for having me. It's, it's been it's been a pleasure. Um, definitely check out uh, my newsletter, um, Long on Humanity on Substack. We just had a, a piece that we published on getting to conviction in early stage health tech um, that I think might be interesting to your audience. Um, mm -hmm. I would also, uh, you know, 
I'm available. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Um, you can definitely follow me there. Uh, I do respond to uh, to ads and, and, and DMs. I'm always happy to chat with folks. So uh, please don't be a stranger. Amazing. Oh, and thank you for, for joining me. We'll make sure all of the, the content is on our show notes so people can find you and really appreciate you coming on. Of course. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate the time. Thank you.